Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You're listening to episode 12 titled Hospice and Grief Hospitality with Ryan Mulkowski. I'm so excited to present Ryan's work to you today because after years working as a hospice chaplain and bereavement coordinator in Atlanta, Ryan has developed his own approachable methodology for grievers to explore their losses and find resolution on their own terms. Ryan's rich educational background includes multiple master's degrees in religion, philosophy, and divinity, and now he's also pursuing additional certification for social work. I think it's fair to say that Ryan is an invested expert in the grief community. So if you're listening and maybe struggling to understand your grief or looking for a new and different way to process, I think today's episode is going to fit the bill. So let's dive in. Ryan Mulkowski, thank you for joining me today, my friend. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. It's always uh, an exciting time to get to talk to you, and I'm just, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Oh, well, we'll dive right in then, because we don't want to waste any of our precious time together. Uh, So you work in, uh, as a chaplain, a hospice chaplain, you are a bereavement counselor, and I have gotten to work with you a few times, just leading some live clubhouse conversations around grief work for people. But I'm curious about how you first decided to even get into this world of grief. Yeah, that's that's a big question, isn't it? I'm I'm fascinated too by this question when I talk to grief professionals like yourself. Uh, I think I always go back, anytime someone asks me this, I always go back to David Kessler, amazing man, David Kessler, who says the grief work, you don't find the grief work, grief work kind of finds you something happens to your life and you just kind of fall into it. So for me, I ended up in hospice work through a church I used to attend and volunteer at. It was really kind of strange happenstance. I was attending a church. I was a member at a church and they needed, and they were doing an Easter outreach. And so they were going to go out into the community at several different sites, different contexts to provide support for people. And one of the contexts they were going to do is they were going to go, they were going to send a team to a hospice inpatient unit in Atlanta. And they were going to provide like little goodie bags and moments to pray with staff members and, and patients who are open to receiving prayer and other opportunities like that. And one of the pastors who were heading, who was heading up the outreach effort came to me and was like, hey, you know, you have pastoral experience. You've been a chaplain intern and a chaplain resident before. You have all this experience. Why don't you head up this particular outreach team that we're doing? And I was kind of like, oh, you know, I've never done hospice. I've never been to a hospice inpatient unit before. I don't know what that's like, but I'm happy to do it, happy to help. And so we go to the, uh, we go to the hospice inpatient unit a, a, a month before we're supposed to do the outreach just to get to know the staff, get to see what we can do, what we cannot do, because in healthcare, there's a lot of rules and regulations and and stuff like that. And when I get there and I meet the volunteer coordinator, you know, she was like very pleasant and was like, hey, happy to meet you, happy to meet you. She was like, Ryan, I know you don't know me and I have no idea what your qualifications are, but I wanted to let you know, are you looking for a job, by the way? And I was like, actually, I am. I'm in between jobs. I had not been working for a couple months. So she's like, our chaplain just announced today, this morning, because we went in the afternoon this morning that she's resigning and we need a chaplain. 
And do you by chance have any experience in this kind of work? And I was like, well, I did do my clinical pastoral education. I was a chaplain intern and a resident. I am an ordained minister. And, and I started going through the list and she's like, oh my goodness, you need to talk to like the executive director like now. And I was like, yeah, but I came here just to volunteer. And she's like, just go talk to him. And I was like, okay, I'll, she's like, I will talk to the pastor. We'll go over that stuff. You go talk to him. So I go to the executive director's office and she connects me with him. Long story short, we sit down and we talk for like two hours, just an impromptu interview, asking me all the questions, getting to know me. He's like, I really like you. I think you'd be a really good fit for this group. So he takes me around and meets the staff and I connect with the staff. And then uh, he's like, okay, I'm gonna send you up for an interview for, at corporate. I interview with corporate, they, we hit it off. And so four days after I go in, thinking I'm just gonna do a one-time volunteer job, they offer me a staff chaplain and bereavement coordinator position at the hospice inpatient unit. So then a month later, when I go back and bring my volunteers, I'm the staff chaplain. I'm not just a volunteer with the church. So, and then I've been in hospice care ever since. So it's been going on five years. So yeah, that's how that happened, which means just literally fell into it. People can say that's, that's divine intervention. It's just happenstance, whatever you believe. I'm just happy that it happened and it's been a wonderful work. Yeah, I think that that's such an approachable perspective to have about the work that you're doing too, because what you took on was no small thing. Being willing to volunteer in a hospice setting is wildly different than saying, yep. I think I want to do this full time and to transition so quickly. Yeah, I had transitioned from 10 years of pastoral ministry, which most of that looked like youth ministry, but I also did pastoral care work. But doing hospice work is, is wildly different. I had to learn a lot as I went. It was, that was the most scary part for me. I want to be able to do good work and I want to really be able to help people. I don't want to harm people. I want to provide people with good care at the most important part of their journey which is the death and dying process. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like fresh into it. I've never had experience with hospice before. Um, I mean, when I did my chaplaincy rotations, I was at a pediatric hospital. So I did have some experience with death and dying, unfortunately, with children, mm -hmm. but still a wildly different context than a hospice context, it, it completely different. So obviously, you know, I had my concerns, but I just dove deep into it and I just put my entire self into it. And learned as much as I could. And I studied and I would like, I'm, I'm a nerd already, but I would literally <laughs> just be doing hours and hours of not just the required education that I had to do for the hospice, but like, uh, you know, additional education, like optional stuff. And I was just reading as many death and dying and bereavement books as possible and really trying to educate myself on how people can navigate that and brushing up on my spiritual care skills and yeah, it was, uh, is a lot, but now having done it for as long as I've been doing it, I'm settled into it. It doesn't mean that I don't have anything to learn. I still have a lot to learn, but yeah, I'm, it's not as scary anymore. Yeah. And I think that removing the veil from the discomfort that's around hospice care and around death and dying is yep. so crucial for us in this world as professionals right. to be able to communicate to other people, this is not going to destroy your life to learn about it. It's not going yeah. to traumatize you. And all you ever think about now is death and dying. It's actually going to make the entire process approachable 
and yes. less overwhelming. So I think your willingness to continually educate yourself and read more mm -hmm. about it is just so powerful. And I think too, it removes the, the stigma that, you know, yes. mental health professionals get into the industry and then just are there doing what they've always done. I think that yeah. ongoing education is so valuable and that's an entirely different conversation. Yeah, there, I mean, you bring up a good point. There are a lot of misconceptions about hospice care, especially in the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. and if you look at the history of hospice care, it's a relatively new concept. I mean, it, it, it started off in the 60s and it started off in the UK. It wasn't even really brought over into the United States until the 80s. It didn't become like a Medicare provided service until the 90s. And so you really don't have a lot of history, you know, uh, in, in the hospice movement. And so we're still trying to build that reputation. And, and I have only been in hospice for a few years, but I know people that have been in hospice for 20, 30 years told me being in hospice in the 80s and the 90s was very difficult work because people had a general distrust. Everyone had these different perceptions. And the 90s was during the Kevorkian era where you had really misconceptions about assisted suicide and everyone thought hospice was just assisted suicide, which it's not. And so if you know dismantling those misconceptions is is in is intensely important and that's part of the work that chaplains and social workers and community liaisons and people that are in hospice work do is we educate and we allow patients and families to be to uh, have informed consent about what the process is but some of the misconceptions are like oh you're just going to kill my loved one that's what hospice does they kill my loved one no, we don't. We provide comfort care to your loved one. We allow the process to go naturally. We don't hasten death. We don't do anything of that nature. We just provide comfort to those through the process because unfortunately it's a painful process if there's no medical intervention involved. Another concept is that it means giving up. Hospice means giving up. I'm giving up on my loved one or my loved one is giving up on themselves. No, it doesn't mean giving up. It means you're taking on a new approach to your life. You're empowering yourself in a different way than you did before. And there's something really freeing about that, especially for a patient who's just tired. They've tried everything. They've tried all the aggressive treatments. They've tried all the different modalities. They've tried all the different things. And they've just tried. And they said, you know what? There's, there's nothing more that can be done for me. So let me take on hospice as my new alternative so I can have a quality of life back, which hospice gives a quality of life to people, especially if you've been going through multiple rounds, let's say of cancer, for example, you've been going through multiple rounds of chemo and radiation and things like that. It, if you've ever seen someone who go through chemo or radiation, if you've ever had a loved one, and I have, it can destroy the body in trying to heal the body, right? People who've gone through that, when they get on the hospice care and they don't have to take the chemo anymore, and they don't have to take the radiation, and they don't have to take those types of treatments, a lot of, I've seen a lot of patients, they start getting an appetite again, they start having more energy, and, and that can be really nice for the patient, the family, in the, you know, the final months of life to kind of feel like you have that again, you know, a sense of ownership and a sense of like, I don't have to constantly go through this anymore, but I, you know, all these treatments anymore, but I get to just be comforted. You know, I just get what I need to find comfort. So I don't have to be in pain. There's something really beautiful about that. So I think, you know, flipping the conversation and really trying to address misconceptions and people's fears about hospice empowers people then to elect hospice as not giving up, 
not trying to kill someone, but trying to give someone comfort, trying to give them hope again. And we do that. One of our, one of our main goals in hospice is to provide patients with hope again, mm. trying to get people prepared for the end of life and to be hopefully at peace at the end of their life and to prepare their families, right? So there's a thing called anticipatory grief, as we all know. People grieve before the event actually happens, for example, right. death, they're grieving. Um, and then of course, if you've had experience with you know, Alzheimer's or dementia related patients, they call it the longest goodbye because you're losing that person slowly as that person declines in their health. And so it's like you're grieving over and over and over and over and over again until your loved one dies. And then there's a whole fresh experience of grief after that. So yeah, that's what it's what it's I'm passionate about it also because I have personal experience in it. I've had several loved ones, aunts and uncles that I've actually seen personally go through the hospice mm -hmm. experience. And I was there by them by their side throughout that experience, and I got to see them pass away, or, or and die in that experience, and just to see how hospice was for me and my family as we are mourning, as we're grieving before, during, and after, and how they were just there and they would show up and they would just take their time, meant an incredible amount to me and impacted me so deeply that when I got it into hospice work, it was also a way of me honoring my loved ones who have gone before. I felt like I got to honor them by now giving to patients and families what I got to receive and what they got to receive. I think there's something beautiful about that cycle of receiving care, receiving support, and then being able to give it, and then just repeating the process as humans over and over again of giving and receiving. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm just honored to do the work. It's really sacred work, it's beautiful work. And people all the time, tell me, how can you do that? How can you work in hospice? How can you, it just seems so depressing or it just seems so awful. Or how can you just be with grieving people all the time? And how does that not get you down? And I just tell people there's a beauty in being able to companion with someone in the journey toward their own healing. I find it beautiful and mm -hmm. I find it to be an honor. And it, 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 and somehow it empowers me to be able to keep doing that. It's not easy work, but it's beautiful work. And I want to be able to try to tell that to people. It's not this doom, gloom, depressing, awful thing that I get to do. I, I want to do it. And I'm honored I get to do it. Well, you get to invite autonomy back to the table for individuals who feel like that's probably the first thing they lost when yes. they were, whether they're dealing with a diagnosis or a treatment plan or just even the complexity of a family placing oh, their the dynamics. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You described hospice care when someone is dealing with chemotherapy and that was my mom. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing, even as you're talking, I don't know that I've ever paid attention to how harmful, how to how harmful her lack of care was in her hospice facility. She was in two before she passed. Okay. And the one I saw her in last was very run down. Mm. And it was the time when I came unhinged with the medical workers who were there. Um, she kept asking for a simple recognition of, can you please call me my name by Leanne, by my first name? 
and they wouldn't they kept referring to her as miss smith as the patient. really it was infuriating and at the time i wasn't working in grief because while i had lost so many people yeah i hadn't transitioned into this field and i left that facility with all the rage inside me ready to change yeah. the entire medicare system i was astounded and part of the problem for me was recognizing oh well every other person in this facility is in their 70s and 80s they're not necessarily here for the same reasons my mom is my mom was in her early 50s oh goodness and she was much higher risk and anyway we ended up, she passed away in a different facility and had much better care, but it was private pay. And I didn't get to see her in the second facility at all. I showed up mm. a little late and she had passed oh, and sorry. it was, it was traumatizing, but also I was grateful that I'd been there a couple of weeks earlier, as awful as it had been. But mm -hmm. I love to hear you say how much the autonomy and the way that you've um, invited hope back in because that was what I saw was a complete lack of hope in the first facility. Mm. And it's so evident to everyone involved that, I mean, I was walking into the nurse's station to get what I needed and they were upset with me. And I said, well, we've called for it four times and you're 20 feet from our door and you're standing here talking about your weekend plans. So I think I'm just going to go ahead and grab it. And yeah, you go ahead and call security or whatever you need. Like my inner bear came out and that was not a, it was not a good look. But uh, it was it was really interesting to see the difference between yeah. intentional care, end of life care, and what's available. Uh, well, first, I want to say I'm incredibly sorry that your mom had that experience. And unfortunately, yeah. I've heard multiple experiences from families who have had negative experiences with hospice. And it just shows yeah. me that there's still work to be done and that there are still really high quality places and really uh, low quality. And I think we see that in every kind of spectrum in healthcare and it includes hospice. So I don't want to negate and say, oh yeah, hospice is, is perfect. And I think that's what perpetuates some of the misconceptions is because they are actually real perceptions by right. people that have had negative experiences. Um, but I am glad to hear that your mom did get to have quality care at the end. Yeah and was able to die with dignity um, because that's what everyone deserves is to die with dignity. So yeah. right, autonomy is important and dignity is important. And those are social work values. And so me um, for, you know, yes, I'm a chaplain and bereavement coordinator, but I'm actually an, uh, a master of social work student. And so I'm gonna be shifting into social work. So those values are important to me. Um, they're important in hospice, they're supposed to be, and they're important just to my professional work as hopefully a future um, social worker is, is autonomy and, and dignity. And so, um, I think I'm, I appreciate you sharing that story because I think more people need to hear that. Yeah, there are some negative stories like that and we need to talk about it because we need we need reform, like you said, right. um, vast reform. Um, and I see it all the time as a as a chaplain when, you know, I'll go to certain facilities and I'm like, wow, these facilities are really nice and they're clean and they're staffed well and the people that are staffed are compassionate and really care about mm -hmm. their work and they're paid well for their services and they're treated with respect which means they perpetuate that respect onto their residents and then you go to nurse some nursing homes and some other facilities that are just completely run down they're dirty they're gross they're understaffed um, the staff are not treated with respect therefore the patients are not treated with respect and it's awful and so there's um 
and that's a whole nother conversation. I mean, we could, I could go on and on about the societal, uh, you know, inequities, you know, that, you know, those who are wealthy and, you know, have the means can get great care and that the poor don't get great care. And yet the poor right. are just as human and have just as much dignity as the wealthy. Yeah. And we need to correct those inequities. And, but I, I see it all the time and it breaks my heart. So I have a question for you based on yeah. that, actually, what is yeah. something that you have encountered in your work, whether it's inequities or just bad habits, or even something that has the potential to increase that inspired you to create a new way of approaching grief or that has invited curiosity around how can I address grief for people, the families who continue to live after they've lost someone or even the dying? What have you, what has inspired you to try to innovate in the industry to bring that reform? You know, that's a very, that's a very good question. I want to say wholeheartedly that it's, it takes a village to, to have reform and I am very blessed that I currently work for an agency that is large, well-staffed, have the best of the best care providers in the state. Um, because of our success and our reputation in the community, we can afford to provide really high quality care of services and we can afford to expand and, and, and have really good vision about what we want to do in the future. Um, my role in that is if anyone comes onto our service, we are mandated by Medicare, by the federal government and by the state government and other entities, we are mandated to provide care to all people as much as possible, regardless of any of the things that you see like, you know, race, you know, sexual orientation and national origin and funding status and all of that, right? So I've had opportunities to provide grief care just as much to the wealthy person who has everything in place that has all the resources that they need, they have all the tools that they need, as much as uh, the person who is poor, who doesn't have those tools, they have a lot of struggles and those struggles complicate their grief greatly, but I still get to go and provide care to them. And for both of those, no cost, right? Because hospice, part of the hospice benefit is bereavement care for 13 months for the family anyone in the family, anyone connected to the patient. So, and then we also provide community service on a more limited scale. So even if someone calls in and they're, even if they didn't have a loved one on our service, but they call in and they want grief support, they want resources, we can provide that to them as well. So hospice does bridge the gap of providing resources where resources may not exist. And yet at the same time, because every hospice is different and they have and they're different sizes and they have different budgets and things like that, they're not all going to provide those equally. So one thing that I'm tasked to do and one thing that I'm always trying to reform is to try to provide higher quality service in a more scalable manner to more people um, as much as possible. And I want to be a part of that movement and continue to be in the part of a part of that movement where I am and wherever that goes for me in the future, I'll, I'll just go with it. But right now I'm just focused in the context that I'm in, but having opportunities like to link up with you and we've done, uh, you know, clubhouse rooms together, 
that's a great way to provide accessibility to people that may not have the resources or the means to be able to attend grief support groups or pay for grief counseling or things of that nature. Um, trying to for us to try to equip people with tools and with support as as little as we can, but it does mean a lot if you have someone that just can't access it and they get us that's a net positive for them. So I think technology bridges the gap as well. And so being able to that's just one example, but that's what little I'm doing. And then I'm trying to also create a process for people because grief is so abstract and it's so bewildering and it's so difficult to navigate. You know, I came up with this three-step process. I kind of came up with this three-part process from distilling everything that I knew into a way that was easy for people to understand because mm -hmm. I could give people a million resources. Grievers don't have the easiest time focusing especially at the beginning of their grief. They're stressed, they're overwhelmed. It's a traumatic experience, difficulty concentrating, a lack of motivation. Those are all normal symptoms of the grief process. Right. So me trying to create an easy process and one that's goal-oriented and solution-oriented hmm. was important to me in my work. Which is <laughs> so necessary because grief, it just steals your brain. We talk about your brain is a bowl of spaghetti and everything you try to pull on is going to touch a lot of other things. So cognition in that time frame is so difficult. So yes. take a minute to explain what your three-step methodology is because it is an approachable and tangible tool for people that they can take away from this and hopefully yeah. just keep it in their pocket for the day that grief shows up in their life. Absolutely. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share. So the three-part process or a three-step process that I've formulated is uh, IPR. In my formulation, it means identify, process, and resolve. All the methodologies that I've studied when it came to psychotherapy, when it came to interpersonal relationships, so whether it's relationship with the self, relationship with others, relationship with the divine, all of those methodologies, all of those different um, formulations that people have come up with, all of them had three common things I um, noted, which was you have to identify whatever the, present, the presenting issue is. You have to process the presenting issue using various coping strategies, methodologies, tools, and then you need to resolve, which means to find a place of completion, resolution, the laying down of the particular thing so that you don't perpetuate a feedback loop. So what a lot of people do is they'll identify something, they'll try to work through something, but then they hold on to that thing and it keeps them stuck in this like never ending cycle, um, a feedback loop, if you will, kind of like for, you know, us older people, you know, cassette tapes, you know, <laughs> you're just keeping the cassette tape going and, and you're instead of, you know, trying to create a new narrative really quickly, I, I'll try to do an example. So let's say you are the presenting thing is, okay, you, your loved one has died and you were very close to this loved one. But let's say you've had some unfinished business with this person. You never got to tell this person maybe this one particular thing that maybe really hurt you. And you really wanted to tell this person because you wanted to try to find some resolution, but you never got the chance to. Maybe they died before you were able to do it. So you're now you're stuck with this presenting issue. I feel guilty or I feel at a disease because this thing is stuck 
and it's keeping me from really grieving my loved one appropriately and thoroughly. So identify the presenting issue. So now you move on to processing. So how do you process? And like I said, there's a lot of different tools, methodologies, but if you're going to use a more cognitive behavioral therapeutic approach, which a lot of grief counseling is based on CBT. So what we use those kind of tools is ask the person who's dealing with this, the client, if you will, the, the griever, the bereaved person, what do you think it would have looked like if you actually got to say the thing that you wanted to say? So allowing them to externalize it, allowing them to say it, and they can do it through letter writing, which is a common tool that people use. They can do it through grief journaling, which actually, if I lead someone through an IPR process, I encourage them to get a journal and to journal all the IPR things. Because the first thing I have them do is I try to have them create a list of all the identifying presenting issues. Because for most grievers, there's more than one thing that they're absolutely struggling with, right? So yes. listing all of those things out is very important. The other reason why I encourage people to do journaling is because when your brain is already in a different state, that difficulty concentrating, the difficulty focusing, finishing tasks, all of those things which are completely normal in the grieving process, writing things down, there's been research that's shown that actually taking a pen and paper and writing things down physically creates a greater reinforcement in the brain in a greater response than, yes, exactly. It creates a greater neural pathway than typing something, for example. Typing something, it does, for some reason, it does not stick. And I think it's because it's a very passive thing to type something, whereas taking a pen is a more active thing. So I I encourage people, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but if you want a journal, I would say (laughs) do do a physical journal with the pen because you're going to have greater um, reinforcement in, in the brain that way, you know, communicating it. So externalizing it, that's why therapy is so helpful for a lot of people is because it gets people out of their head and right. it gets people to externalize it. And if you have a really good, competent therapist, that therapist is able to reflect back mm-hmm. to you, what you've said, but then they're also able to provide tools and different insights that you may not know and be aware of. Cause you're just stuck in here and you're just trying to get it out. Um, so that's processing. So you would process using different methodologies, different tools. So if you need, so self-care is an important part of the processing too. So I also talk about mindfulness a lot. So as you're processing something, try to practice mindfulness and, and meditation if, pos- as, if possible. Mm-hmm. So trying to clear all distractions as much as possible and being focused on not just the thing, not just the event, but focus on your emotional reaction to it. Because we all have subconscious reactions to conscious realities, right? We all have these, you know, these triggers, if you will. And so as I'm thinking of, I didn't get to say this thing to my loved one, what kind of emotional response am I getting in that moment? Like, what am I feeling in that moment? Really looking inward. So am I feeling anger? Am I feeling despondent? Am I feeling sad? Am I feeling depressed? Am I feeling lonely? Am I feeling guilty? Whatever the feeling is, try to identify that feeling and then work through that feeling. So, you know, meditating and being mindful is, is very important. So that's the processing part. And that's kind of like, that's where the work is, you know, identifying, you can identify something quickly. Processing takes a lot of intentionality and takes a lot of work, but the most important part is resolution. And one of the things that I noticed in my years of experience and just doing and trying to care for myself and receiving support for myself is I tend to hold on to things <laughs> even after it's necessary or it's useful. 
Right. And I think a lot of us do that. We'll hold on to pain because we've, we are so afraid of what it means if we truly let it go. I had a griever who was afraid of letting go a particular thing about her father because she felt like if she let go of the guilt that she had toward her father, that she'd be letting her father go. Exactly. So she had this like this kind of conflation yep. and kind of catastrophizing response, which is a trauma response. So having to work gently with her and 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 guide her and and reassuring her and validating her feelings, but also kind of reframing and letting her know that you letting go of the guilt does not mean letting go of the memory of your father or the emotional connection that you had to your father. Right. Actually, if you do it, it'll enhance the emotional connection that you have yeah. with your father. Absolutely. So I, loving people through that is important. And that's the resolution part. So if you can just, mm -hmm. after you've processed it thoroughly, you've identified it, you processed it thoroughly. If you can just complete it and lay it down and not pick it back up again, then you find yourself moving toward a path of greater healing and mm -hmm. wholeness and hope and joy. And that's the goal, right? That's the goal for the human experience. You want to move out of pain. You want to move into joy. You want to move out of hopelessness and move into a path toward hope. You know, that's that's the journey. Yeah. And so part of that grief journey is how to move people toward that. Because yeah. we don't really do the work, Mandy. We assist people in doing their own work, right? getting their own tools, taking ownership of their own journey. I just the other day was saying expression is not the same as processing. And mm -hmm. when you say something out loud, you might feel a little bit of release, but the truth is, no, you're just, like you said, externalizing, you're just identifying what you need to talk about. You yep. then have to do the talking about it. And then mm -hmm. you have to recognize, okay, I have the choice of holding this pain close and carrying it with me and letting it influence my decision-making and influence my perception of myself or of others, or I can recognize that in doing this processing, I have, a, as a person, have expanded. I am taking up more space because I'm carrying more skills, more understanding, more compassion for what I've gone through and where I am. That release portion is such an easy thing to get stuck on or afraid of, like you were saying, because the idea that our grief and our person we've lost or our circumstance are conflated, are mixed up, are intermingled is so common because we don't, we don't know how to differentiate the two. Now, you know, I think of my mom, my ability to consider her without remembering that she has passed away has finally wow. separated. And it takes me now to be fair, the hard part about that is I, we were just on a family vacation with all of my mom's side of the family. And I woke up that morning thinking, oh, mom's probably already in the kitchen. Mm. It's been almost six years. It took me a solid 15 seconds going down the stairs before I realized, whoa, that thought was jarring. Yeah. But what a joy in those 15 seconds to recognize that emotional connection and the mm -hmm. feeling of oh, my mom is totally in that kitchen right now probably laughing at someone who boiled the coffee over wrong, <laughs> probably wondering why no one is scrambling 500 eggs for everybody. You know, those moments of actually just embracing, oh, my mom, of course she, she's here with us. So that, oh. but that release, yeah, I love that as the way you articulated it, because it's very complicated to um, 
approach your grief if you think you're going to be told you have to move on. And yes. I, I think it re- the word release is so invitational, especially once it's defined and really made, uh, made clear that this is your decision. These are your autonomous choices in your grief process because you have to process eventually. You're either right. going to process intentionally and and with awareness of your processing, or you're going to explode on everyone you meet and every right. time grief encounters your story again. Yep. Yep. So that is just, that's a beautiful process. Thank you for sharing it. And I'm so, you'll have to quickly tell me about your book. Is it just going to be IPR or is it? It'll be, a part, I think it'll be a part of the story. I think the book, the trajectory of the book right now is it's kind of an overall approach to the grief experience, but mm-hmm. I'm writing it specifically from a secular perspective. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I am is because I've noticed that the majority of grief literature has a lot of spirituality entwined into it that some mm-hmm. people might just not find useful or helpful. And so I just wanted to create a resource for those people as the as there is a growing population of people that are irreligious, secular, things of that nature, uh, myself included. I wanted to be able to create a resource for them. And uh, it doesn't mean that I don't appreciate the, the bevy of resources that are already available that have helped so many people, yeah. but I think we need to have greater equity and resources. And so that's part of my goal is to create that for secular uh, people um, that can remove some of the, the supernatural or spirit or spiritual mm-hmm. elements that I think a lot of people cling to because it gives yeah. them comfort, it gives them hope, it gives them peace. But for the secular person, those things don't exist. So I want to create a resource of, you can still find hope and comfort and peace. It just looks different and let's explore how it looks different. And, but I will talk about IPR as part of that process, about yeah. a part of the way to find healing, and, but then talk about just kind of the greater experience of, of grief in general. As I say, chew the meat, spit out the bones. If you are right. looking for support, find something, take it with you, what serves and the rest of it just set aside. So I think yes. you're absolutely right. We need more. We just need more grief literacy in general. We need more resources. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, Ryan, we could talk for another 12 hours. So in the interest of our loving audience who's still with us, how can yeah. they get a hold of you if they have questions or yeah. um, just want to know more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So easiest way to find me, uh, Twitter and Instagram at Ryan Mulkowski. So my name, uh, that's uh, M-U-L-K-O-W-S-K-Y. Mulkowski. Um, I have a website, ryanmulkowski.com. So those are probably the easiest ways to get a hold of me. DMs are open. You can also use the contact form on my website. Um, those are the best ways to get a hold of me and look at some of the work that I do and some of the things that I talk about. And you'll see me and Mandy interact a lot because we do the clubhouse group together many times and she's just a great person. So I just interact <laughs> with her anyway. She's well, just a good friend. So that was a nice uh, little, <laughs> but, um, that that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending your time and your wisdom and sharing just an insight into how we can approach grief and death and dying with a little bit more compassion. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of Restorative Grief. I love the compassionate enthusiasm Ryan brings to the grief support world because it is so easy to find yourself burned out when working with loss. Finding new ways to care for ourselves through grief is crucial and I believe that Ryan's IPR methodology will be a game changer for so many of you. 
As he mentioned in the episode, you can connect with Ryan directly through social media and all of his links are in the show notes. So be sure to check those out and give him a follow on Twitter. I know he's very active over there. And before you go, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to each one of you listening, to those of you who've subscribed and left reviews for Restorative Grief wherever you're listening, and to everyone who's reached out to me on social media about an episode or a thought that they've heard. Hearing your stories and the insights you've gained through this podcast makes every moment of recording, production, and prayer that I put into it absolutely worthwhile. But with that said, I'm going to take the next two weeks off from releasing new episodes because I need a break too sometimes. So I plan to return on December 12th with episode 13. In the meantime, I would encourage you to look backwards at older episodes, maybe take out a journal and start processing some of your thoughts to yourself, much like Ryan described in his IPR methodology, and just get familiar with the ins and outs of what you're carrying and where you're going. I'm really looking forward to this break, but I'm really looking forward to coming back and seeing all of you soon. So until then, take care of yourselves and we'll talk to you next time.